happening now <laughs> or later, or is it even going to go? No, it is happening live <laughs> happening now. This is now I've just completely messed myself up <laughs> happening now. We'd like to welcome you to our viewers from across the world in North America. And I'm just going to go off the script all night to the EdTech situation room. This is episode 232 for September the 22nd, 2021. We are able to speak the English language here, so bear with us. We are going to bumble through the beginning. But I am Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am continuing to enjoy this extremely expensive piece of earwear, which, yeah, if you're listening to this, you can't see it anyway. But joining me tonight in his flannel, and I'm suspecting that might be because there is some cooler weather in Montana, Dr. Jason Neifer. Dr. Neifer, has the flannel come out of the chest of drawers or is, is it always readily at hand to grab at a moment's notice in Montana? Yeah, I will say that one of the, um, one of the downfalls of going back to my, my physical office, which I did at the beginning of August, um, to be in a, uh, kind of a hermetically sealed cube all day long is that, um, I was wearing a lot of flannel last year because it didn't really matter what we weared, um, in, in the era of the midst of the pandemic. So, um, this is, uh, I, I do generally have a flannel at, at the ready and it's a little cooler tonight here in Montana. In fact, this morning when I got up, it was a chilly 37 degrees. And so, uh, I, I need to stay warm at night, but yes, the weather is cooling off here in lovely Western Montana, but I'm guessing that we're not here to talk about the weather and I'm guessing that my flannel, although a fascinating topic, is also not the topic tonight. Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room all about? Well, we are here to talk about the past week's technology news through an educational lens. Jason and I will oftentimes rant and go down some rabbit holes. We have a list of links, which last week was, as I named it, the epic Apple show, because it was about 50 minutes of, of Apple events. Um, and I, you know, it may have even inspired participants in our show to rush out and buy things you never know uh but <laughs> tonight man it could be the the tech correction the epic tech correction show but if you want to check out our links you can find those at edtechsr.com slash links we comb the internets and put together this list of links which has different categories that you can peruse and contemplate um yeah, if, and, and hey, if you're joining us live or you want to join us live, that's always fun. And you can give us suggestions on what you'd like us to touch on because we usually do not have time to get to all the topics. But our epic Google Doc, which even though it is literally hundreds of pages long, amazingly continues to work great. And <laughs> we're ready, ready for it to fail at any time, but it hasn't yet. And as I'm trying to click my link to get down to the table of contents, okay. We're just going to scroll down uh, our topics tonight. I know the tech correction is one of them. Uh, and I know Apple is going to be one of them. Um, we've also got some Microsoft, Microsoft news, yeah, work life balance and space, um, which is kind of a tenuous one. But, hey, I'm, you know, inspiring the next generation of astronauts that will see the Artemis program probably land on the moon, um, certainly with a robotic rover but before they, you know, some of them leave middle school, definitely before they leave high school. And anyway, that's what we have tonight. So Dr. Neifer, where would you like to begin tonight's inquiry into the tech news? Well, let's do a couple quick Apple articles. We won't let suck up the whole show this week. Um, I guess I'd start off with Monday, um, new versions of iOS, iPad OS, 
and watch OS were all available. And I had been uh, beta testing um, iPad OS 15 on a uh, iPad Air 3 and then was upgraded to what they oftentimes call the Gold Master, which is the final version that's released to uh, the public. And so that came over the weekend, and then I received iOS 15 on my phone, and, and then I noticed some things were wonky on my watch, so I went ahead and updated to watch OS 8. And um, we share a pretty good article from uh, 9to5Mac that polls people on what they think their their favorite new feature is. But what I like about that list is that you can kind of see the stuff that's probably making uh, the most waves, since it is clearly, um, you know, a, a lot of these things are, are, are pretty small uh, 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 pieces. But uh, probably the number one feature on their list that I also saw was pretty interesting is something called Live Text, which is a new ability to use your camera to point towards a an object that has text on it, and it becomes searchable and selectable. So in other words, if there is a phone number and a billboard, it'll be the first way I would do that. And you don't want to type the phone number in, open up your camera, it'll highlight text. Um, you press on it and ask if you want to dial on that text. It adds a real layer of functionality to, you know, the actual world, which I think is super cool. And then one other feature I've already noticed uh, is Apple Maps are a lot better. And I will say, I still think Google Maps is better here. Unfortunately, Apple lost uh, uh, a bit of, of, of credibility with me with Maps when it first rolled out. Apple Maps, and I won't talk about the specific instance, but I actually almost missed a plane because of bad Apple Maps directions. Um, but uh, uh, it seems to be a little bit better, too. So I'd start with you, Wes. Have you uh, uh, updated to any of these new operating systems and what your initial thoughts? Why, yes, I actually did. Last night I pulled the trigger uh, and updated the the uh, watch or the phone first and the watch. Uh, the first thing you notice is Safari. And I guess it's this compact tab something. I don't forget what it's called, but anyway, the, the, the link, um, you know, Omnibar, whatever the URL link is down at the bottom. Um, I've noticed a few different permission things, you know, popping up and asking, it hasn't been anything dramatic yet. Um, but as is often the case with these kind of updates, it's great to turn to the tech press to filter this and, you know, be able to help us figure out what, it, you know, should we pay attention to this? What should we pay attention to this? And so I want to do a shout out. I've almost finished it to the podcast um, iOS Today, which is part of the Twit or This Week in Tech Network. And this is their episode from yesterday, September the 21st. And it's with Micah Sargent and Rosemary Orchard. And it's called Our Favorite iOS 15 Apps. And um, the, I get, well, maybe I did finish it today. I've, all, I've almost got, I've, I'm interested in the focus modes. Um, I'm really interested in this from a wellness standpoint. So, you know, I turn my do not disturb on, I, you know, use that and, and I'll use that on my computer as well. Cause you don't want, you know, text messages and things coming up. I actually recorded, I recorded a video that I was, uh, it was a screencast video anyway, where my, and my grill, it was, it was for our adult, you know, Sunday class that we do. But anyway, you don't want that. You don't want notifications. Hey, your grills, you know, almost preheated or a text message or whatever. So I've just used those, but focus modes allow you to define different kinds of automations and things like that, that you want to have happen when you're in different situations, you can manually invoke them, but they can also be, you know, spontaneously invoked because of 
your location, the time, you know, other kinds of factors. So uh, in, they have an interesting discussion in the podcast about how, well, I think both of them actually, uh, both Micah and um, Rosemary are, are ADHD and, and just how valuable that can be for them specifically of, you know, being able to remain, to maintain focus. You know, I've enjoyed my Kindle and part of the reason is it's just less distracting in terms of having apps and everything else. So I think there's something significant here. And, and, and as we often do as sort of technology early adopters, which I'm sure many of the folks listening to our podcast are, you know, you kind of dabble with these things and try them. And they're like, yeah, this, this is a thing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to dabble with that. And I think it might be worth exploring and sharing you know, with students thinking about like, how does, how distracted do you want to be when you're doing a particular kind of studying, you know, or a particular kind of work? Uh, you can really control interruptions in terms of what apps are going to notify the people that are going to notify. It's just, it's highly configurable. Uh, but it's also kind of complex. And Micah talks about in the podcast being a little bit intimidated by that. Um, but the things they go over are focus modes, FaceTime links, which let Android and, and Microsoft users that are not on an iOS or iPhone or Mac device, Apple device, uh, connect to FaceTime. I don't see that being very significant. The microphone modes is really cool to filter background sounds at your microphone, but you have to have a fancy microphone. So I don't know if that's going to work for me. The Safari redesign, you're going to have to decide whether to stick with it or not. Um, but the shared with you, this is what I was just hearing actually as I was cooking dinner, apparently is a feature that really lets you, um, it collects all the links, for instance, that have been shared with you in messages. So it just really helps you contextually find things that have been shared. And back to my wonderful days of visiting Missoula and listening to Jason talk about bear trap, you know, bear traps and tra trapping information. That's such a valuable metaphor for what we need to be doing is finding ways that we are going to be able to get back to information, trap it. And it looks like Apple's really integrating some of those features. I could go on with some other privacy things, but I, I, you know, I have a little bit of a day of dabbling and that's about it. But I think there is some stuff to really be excited about here. And of course, it's free for what? Everybody who's an iPhone six user and newer. I yeah. mean, that's pretty astounding. So how about you? Any of that stuff whet your appetite to, to try or to dig into? It does. Um, because of, of how much I use my phone for medical stuff, um, I'm, I'm going to work on the focus modes down the road because I already received a couple warnings from those apps that I utilize saying that you need to be careful because you may not get notifications that you need if you set that up incorrectly. So I'll, I'll give it a couple of weeks. Um, but I, I, I couldn't agree more that it's really important to take these, these tool sets that I think the phone manufacturers are starting to give us and set them up to help define where the device engages with your life. And, um, I think it'd be very easy to cynically dismiss that no one wants to hear a teacher in your classroom tell, tell students to, um, you know, to put your uh, focus modes or set up your focus modes or do that. But I think the classroom is the perfect place to do that. I also think it's important to model where, you know, if, if your kids know that you're into technology, your kids know that you're super into your cell phone. I mean, you know, I, this is a real opportunity, I think, for teachers that are tech savvy to talk about uh, with students that, you know, this is a really cool thing. Uh, chances are your kiddos are probably <laughs> utilizing an older phone anyways. Luckily, they're going to get this update. But you talk about I'm making a very dis big distinction 
um, that, you know, from eight to three every day while I'm teaching in this building, I'm going to set a focus mode that tells me that I'm not going to get anything from these social media sites or from these news sites. And um, my understanding of focus modes is you can, you can drill these down pretty, uh, 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 or a pretty finite what, or, uh, I, Finite's the word I'm looking for. Granular. Um, a granular way is the word I'm looking for in a very granular way so that you could say things like, don't send me anything from these news apps except for important breaking news, right? Or don't send me text messages except for from my spouse and kids or something along those lines. And that, I think that's important modeling. And these tools keep getting, you know, evolutionarily better at helping us kind of protect us from our own devices. And that's just going to be honestly the way we're going to be able to continue to use these while seeing the diminishing impact from the addiction and the, um, you know, Vegas uh, gambling machine style high we get when notifications come over, as we've talked about, you know, numerous times in the past. And I think that there's a temptation and a tendency because it is easier, you know, in the classroom to just make those decisions for the kids, right? Yeah. Hey, phones are up. Hey, you know, check them in here. Hey, put them away. You know, we're not going to use them at all. Um, and, you know, it it is hard. But I, I think that it's certainly a conversation we need to be engaged, engaged with students uh, in, and we need to find places where that's going to happen. Um, we had a interesting set of conversations this week. We, we have every 10 years – we have basically an audit of our school of all aspects of our school. And that was this week and it was actually postponed a year because of the pandemic. But one of the conversations that we were having in our technology area was how we stop requiring a technology class at sixth grade. I teach fifth and sixth and those are the last required classes. You can take electives, but I just really think eighth grade, ninth grade, when, when more kids have phones, when maturity levels are, are higher, when social media is even more of a, of a, of a presence and a power, you know, it's important to have these conversations and it's important to have with adults too. So I saw in the chat that Peggy had signed up for a um, multi, I guess, four week uh, workshop on iOS 15. And so uh, actually, yeah, that's cool. It's called, it's at iPhoneLife.com. It's a, it's a uh, course that she's going to do virtually. So that's pretty cool. The website's iPhone life. So yeah, free shout out to not a sponsor, but, Hey, Peggy George, Geek of the Week, coming to you early. So, because, you know, it is a challenge, right? How are you going to learn these new, these new things? I think the privacy aspects of the phone, which I've only heard about but not played with, where, you know, you can essentially, it sounds like, almost run a tour-like experience where your IP address is masked and things are routed. It can, it'll slow your connection down, according to Micah. But in terms of privacy, if you're concerned about that, uh, and then also with emails that it'll, the system will be able to generate emails for different things that you register for. And I guess people have been able to do that for a while. Back in the day, you know, Yahoo had this alias thing that you could create that I made and use some of those and still have some things using them. They still work, <clears throat> but that was a, that was a, an address that would deliver to your, to your email. But it could, I think you could track it and, and see, you know, what happened and who shared it and whatever. So there's some good privacy things that I think, you know, Apple is doing here as well. Um, nothing that I think is completely earth shattering, but, um, you know, new features they're adding to, um, you know, iCloud plus, but the, the share, maybe the most practical thing is the sharing. So haven't played with that yet. 
but I think it is something for us all to think about, you know, how, how do we continue to, to learn and how do we continue to share and, and do these things, you know, bleed over to our daily jobs and things that we share with teachers and students. Um, you know, nothing epitomizes the need to be a lifetime learner, like looking at the pace of technology change and how many, you know, hey, it's, you know, it's the new operating system. It's the new new update to office or whatever, you know, that's come about, which unfortunately sometimes feels like you're lowering your your capabilities. I mean, that's the worst scenario because you're like, oh, I can't do what I used to do, you know, because it's changed. Hopefully it's going to be empowering and equipping and allow us to do, you know, more things when we want to do more things. Uh, Apple tends to do a, a good job with that. So I'm excited to get to play with that more and also, you know, updated the watch and um, I hope, hopefully battery consumption is not going to be, uh, you know, impacted. I've, uh, it's been interesting to see how that sometimes affects, you know, with the, the yeah. operating system. I have an early, early observation about watch OS eight and I'm running a, a, an Apple watch six. So that's the latest model. It's not the new model, which it will be out later this fall. And it, this seems like it's actually a little better with battery life. Um, and these are not more, I mean, they're, they're about 18 to 20 hour devices. You can sometimes eat more out of them if you put a low power uh, mode on at night. I've had it last a day and a half before when I've had it on lower power mode, uh, during the, the nighttime, but, um, it seems to be a little better. So we can certainly hope. One more quick one that I won't detail exhaustively, but uh, you had actually tweeted it, Jason. It's from Lifehacker, and it's the 36 best new features in iOS 15. And this is set up. I'm sure if I had my ad blocker off, I would be seeing tons of ads each time I click through, but it's all slides that you click through. Uh, and so anyway, this is just a nice visual way to be able to get a quick summary of those. And again, the tech media and tech um, journalism crowd is great to turn to at times like these because yes you could go watch the entire you know apple event but even if you do you're not going to dive into that level of detail with all of these things so good resources to check out yep absolutely okay where to next sir well why don't we talk about the tech correction at the risk of you know <laughs> maybe talking about it a lot in the show how many articles do we have we didn't do a we have quite a, a few number numbered list. or so yeah numbered list says oh it's through h so can't tell me the numbers does that let us do numbers yeah well oh, well fancy anyway we have a lot yeah there's about eight or nine um okay let's start with the wall street journal uh september 17th wall street journal published a, I think, five-part series called The Facebook Files. And there's actually a nice video <laughs> that you can watch, and, and I started that, uh, that is a summary of this Wall Street Journal investigation. Um, I'll read the, the headlines of each section and then just kind of give you the summary. One, Facebook says its rules apply to all. Company documents reveal a secret elite that's exempt. Number two, Facebook knows Instagram is toxic from any teen girls company document show. And actually, the statistics on that are pretty shocking. I think it's like two in three teen girls of the study, you know, that, that they had had. Um, three, Facebook tried to make its platform a healthier place. It got angrier instead. Four, Facebook employees flagged drug cartels and human traffickers. The company's response is weak. Document show. And five, how Facebook hobbled Mark Zuckerberg's bid to get America vaccinated. Overall, what these documents paint a picture of is a company that has invested actually quite a bit in doing research and, and hiring staff to do research and find out what's going on with the platform 
And in the face of pretty overwhelming evidence that there is really toxic, bad, negative impacts, they didn't do very much. So it's very indicting and condemning. Will this be another, you know, sort of brick in the wall or chink in the dam or whatever you want to say to, to try to, you know, bring about the, the technology correction, which as listeners of our show know is Jason's term for regulation coming as a result of a variety of factors that are causing people to be upset at what the tech platforms have either done or not done. And um, unfortunately, the Wall Street Journal is a paywall, right? But I don't actually, this is an article, I think, if unless something weird is happening with my connection. Uh, this is an article that you can just, they've, they've placed it open uh, and you don't have to have a subscription. And, um, oh, shoot, I say that now. Sorry. It's just the overview that you have. And as you click on each section, um, interestingly, you can listen to the article in two minutes, but I'm going to suspect that that's not going to work. Um, you've got to, you've got to be logged in to, to see the whole thing. So looks like a good piece of journalism. Uh, I don't know that there's anything radically new here. Um, so Jason, is any, is any amount of tech journal of, of journalism like this going to actually push us to regulation or are these companies just too powerful and the lobbyists too persuasive with their, their dollars uh, in Washington for anything to happen? Well, I'd start off with that. I heard accounts of these stories um, on the way to work last Friday when they were released. NPR had a, a about a two or three minute article on it. And to be honest, I'm, I'm outraged by it that this notion that Facebook knew uh, by their own internal data and research that, it, that uh, things as uh, diverse as, it was helping radicalize the population and that uh, 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 they were able to make Facebook more engaging by serving up increasingly more radical political notions on one end. On the other end, that a third of teenage girls uh, were, were basically self-body shaming because of things they saw on Instagram. And I think that, that is really problematic. And it also sounds like by almost, you know, every account that they knew this information, but they decided not to do anything about it because they didn't want to hurt their profit margin. And that sounds crass, like that perhaps I'm being uh, too oh. critical, but that's exactly what the, the study suggested, that it was a profit motive that kept Facebook from dealing with this. And um, I don't, I, I, you know, the, the, the question you pose, Wes, about whether this is going to lead to some regulation, um, it could, I don't think that that's going to be good enough, though, right? Like, the bottom line is is that, uh, in part because of factors we've talked about in the past, that our current load of politicians seem unable uh, to really grasp social media to the point of writing meaningful, like, meaningful regulation. But the bottom line is is that I, I, the evidence keeps getting that much more damning. And I'm, I'm, I'm saddened, and I, I'm also a bit mystified on what we do about it. Well, again, we've got a lot of articles about this. This is uh, one that I saw yesterday from the New York Times. It is titled, No More Apologies Inside Facebook's Push to Defend Its Image. And Facebook is now using their news feed to push their own propaganda. And they are also trying to distance Zuckerberg from, you know, no public apologies, basically taking a much more offensive tone um, against the folks that are, are challenging them. It mentions, and I, we talked about this on the show a, a couple of weeks ago, I think, you know, how some, um, 
researchers, I think, have essentially been deplatformed. That's not what they're really calling it, but their access to these APIs that Facebook had created to allow for research. You know, they were taken off the platform and then they, they said, oh, well, the FCC says that we, you know, they tried to use a government order to, to say this is why, you know, because these people were collecting data. But the but it was the FCC or the I think it was the FCC came back and said, no, you know, collecting data, having academics do research to increase transparency for the platform is absolutely not prohibited by our order and, and past directives. And so there's a real struggle going on in this New York Times article really, unfortunately, shows I think an extremely negative response on the part of Facebook, which is to dig in, be defensive, now use the news feed to push pro Facebook, you know, um, articles and things to try to, to influence public perception in a positive way about Facebook. And, you know, they just, they haven't taken action that this was the whole focus, by the way, of my, you know, why care about privacy and surveillance capitalism presentation last week that I shared as a, as a geek of the week. You know, there's horrific stuff that's happened. The 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 uh, genocide uh, and, and and refugee crisis in Myanmar or in Burma of the Rohingya minority. Um, you know, the election. Um, you know, it influencing. You know, if not outright throwing. You know, Brexit in the presidential election. That's a highly charged political concept to say. Um, but, you know, undoubtedly, it, it, there was a whole lot of Russian interference that was allowed and permitted. And so um, this article, I think, shows just how Facebook is rotten and the and the leadership is not responding in a positive way. So uh, I don't see anything here redeeming on the part of Facebook or making me feel, you know, sorry for them or at all, you know, just feeling good about them. I'm 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 not. We've talked about this before. I'm not at the point of wanting to quit because I use Facebook all the time and I connect to so many people. So this is the irony of the situation that we're in. They've created a platform that is, you know, too good to quit. We've heard of too big to fail. Well, too good to quit is sort of what um, Facebook is for, for me and I think for a lot of people. But the pattern of behavior that they've had that, that these articles demonstrate just is reprehensible without a doubt. Yep. Absolutely. And I would also mention that um, I, I'm on Facebook. I know Dr. Fryer's on Facebook. I, I wouldn't call either of us serial posters by any stretch of the imagination, but we post, uh, you know, a decent amount. But I would say that one of the reasons why I've stayed on Facebook is because I do crave that connection with people that are far away. And that's where I, you know, I, not that I wouldn't be willing to walk away because to be honest, it probably would be better for my mental health if I did. But the bottom line is, is that I've utilized that connection quite a bit over the last 15 years to stay connected with people that I, I know and love. And that's the part that, 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 that really makes this complicated for me because I see so much value in the connections the tool can bring. But at this point, it's becoming harder and harder to stay connected in that way, um, without questioning the motives of, of, of what the point of the tool is. So the Wall Street Journal article, the Facebook files I referenced, as I said, is behind a payroll. But I think you put a couple articles in that are not, uh, yep. which which key in on a couple of those things. The the Guardian's article from September 18th leaks just exposed how toxic Facebook and Instagram are to teen girls and well everyone. And then the Verge article, uh, Facebook VP, you know, disputes report claiming the platform knows about multiple flaws it doesn't fix. I mean, this is the thing that documentation 
just rejects, right? So you have people who represent the company coming out and saying, no, it's not true. This does not refute evidence. And that's what the, the documentation is. So, you know, it's just, uh, it is maddening. And I think I mentioned on the show a few weeks back that I had heard Ken Burns on Kara Swisher's podcast talk about how horrible he was convinced Facebook was. And I'm like, of course he didn't tweet back to me, but anyway, I was like, what do you mean? You know, give the details. I think these articles are exactly the kind of things that are enraging. And I mean, as if we need more outrage, we do not really need (laughs) more outrage in our society, but goodness gracious, it's just, it's uh, not only something to think about from a policy level, but like looking at that article you put in about how this affects teen girls, like this is important stuff for us to talk about with our family members, with our, you know, cousins, nieces and nephews, you know, whatever it's, it, this is, there are powerful psychological effects here, which we are in many cases probably just dimly aware of, but these articles are, are pretty dramatic. And I think the, conclusions of some of these studies are pretty strident as far as the effects and not really vague yep. and ambiguous. Couldn't agree more. You want to do that t- uh, Texas uh, terrible social media law? Yeah. Um, the Verge reported on September 22nd that, I mean, so we talk about regulation a lot you know, when we talk about the tech correction. And something we talk quite a bit about is, is how incapable we feel uh, uh, a lot of policymakers are to make uh, make these regulations, right? And we talked a lot about when uh, uh, tech CEOs were, were drug onto Capitol Hill to, to go to congressional hearings, and a lot of senators didn't even understand how social media worked or secondarily how it made its money. But um, uh, as an example of probably the wrong kind of regulation, there is a um, there's a, a, a bill in Texas, it was called House Bill 20, and House Bill 20, according to The Verge, is one of many state-level efforts to make companies like Facebook and Twitter leery of moderating their own content. And this is aimed at perceptions that these platforms are, are unequally uh, uh, aggressive towards um, conservative accounts and conservative points of view, as opposed to other types of points of view. And the idea is, is that um, um, if you have a platform like this, you can't censor uh, points of view um, that you disagree with. And um, the notion of these laws, and they oftentimes will cite a first, a first amendment defense, but you don't, have a First Amendment right. The courts have, have been very clear about this. You don't have a First Amendment right to speak on anyone's platform. You have a First Amendment right to speak, and government can't interfere with your speech. But that's really where the First Amendment ends, right? It's extremely powerful amendment, but it doesn't obligate platforms to carry your messages. And the uh, th- this is a, there's a lot several lawsuits actually being waged against this House Bill 20, but. Um, a, a group called Net Choice and the Computer and Communications Industry Association, or CCIA, um, uh, are the, the major lawsuit uh, uh, trying to get rid of House Bill 20. Um, but one of the arguments they make is that it imposes um, uh, 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 an inability for companies that have platforms to censor things they find unpopular. And more importantly, um, uh, it could force 
uh, uh, points of view that most people would find repugnant and say that they, you have to allow these points of view. And, and the ones that the, uh, Verge article talks about are pro Nazi speech and terrorist propaganda. And, you know, before, you know, you, uh, uh, or people, you know, fly to conclusions that, well, that will never happen. And clearly there'll be other factors there. These are some very fine lines we're drawing here between what is acceptable speech on someone else's platform and what is not. So any thoughts here, Dr. Fryer? Yeah. I mean, I, I think back to the school focus, uh, we need to be talking about what free speech is. You know, there are lots of misconceptions and these misconceptions have been pushed by groups with different kinds of agendas. Um, you know, I, again, I think I've mentioned it and it is a not safe for work. Don't have the kids or grandkids around if you're going to watch all the episodes. <clears throat> but there is a like five part series on HBO about QAnon. And it is a fascinating dive into a whole lot of stuff, including, you know, some folks that have very radical views about free speech that have run platforms like 4chan and 8chan, these image boards um, that have hosted absolutely horrific content. And what some of the, you know, founders and people like that will say is, well, I grew up in the United States and learned that everybody can say whatever they want and have a, you know, right to, you know, free speech is basically an absolute right. That's not bounded. And so we need to, as part of our civics education and, as part of our education as critical thinking people, <clears throat> I mean, we need to understand the, the boundaries of our own freedoms. And yes, we in the United States have some guarantees. We don't have privacy, you know, privacy rights yet. We just inferred rights from our constitution. I mean, we have them in fact, but we don't have articulated, you know, in the constitution, for instance, uh, privacy rights. And, and we don't have a GDPR here yet, but, it mis misconceptions over freedom of speech are really, really important. And what we're also seeing here, and we're not a political show, but we oftentimes touch on political issues is we'll sometimes see politicians do things that they may realize and their legal advisors, I think may realize this ain't going to fly. You know, this isn't going to hold up in court, but they're still doing stuff to try to, you know, gain the approval of, of, of voters and, you know, for purposes other than enacting the change. And so perhaps some of this fits into that category as well. Peggy had put an article that I uh, put up there uh, from platformer.news uh, about these research scandals being different. I had not seen that article, but we can include that one in the show notes. Let me uh, say something else about Facebook and actually uh, tech companies more generally, and then a little bit about Google because the tech correction is not all about Facebook, although a ton of it, you know, focuses around there. Uh, this is a really cool podcast network, and I almost could have included this as a geek of the week, but it's called the Scholars Strategy Network. Connect with scholars on research. And this was their September 8th episode, episode 228. It's called The Past and Future of Big Tech. And it is an interview with uh, Margaret O'Mara uh, of the University of Washington. Her most recent book is called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. This is a fantastic look at the overall arc of Silicon Valley, Fairchild, I think it was, Semiconductor. And there's this perception within, about, within America about Silicon Valley, maybe it's worldwide, that these companies have just been allowed to be free and to not be regulated. And that's what's caused all this innovation. Well, actually Silicon Valley has been heavily invested in by the government and, and by the, you know, defense industry and uh, the, the, the way in which, you know, we 
had Moore's law and, and what's happened with microchips and all this. So it is a really, really excellent deep dive into not only as it says the past, but also the future of big tech. So that's a great podcast that you may want to add to your podcast list. And then to move beyond Facebook uh, and talk a little about, about uh, Twitter, Ars Technica had an article on November 18th. Google is getting caught in the antitrust net. One case in Turkey cuts to the heart of the search giant's power. And the case here is arguing and, and, and uh, Google, they have actually been ruled against multiple times now in, in the European Union and in different countries, but saying you can't just favor your own Google search results, for instance, when people search for local things like restaurants or whatever. And it points to the fact that search in search engines like Google, but companies in, you know, who are providing internet service run the risk today. And maybe it's not even run the risk. It's a reality of having to comply with different laws in different countries. And, you know, in some cases that may mean turning services completely on or off. We talked on the show in the last month about Australia and the way their law was threatening to what, like lose Google entirely. Microsoft was excited. Yay, Bing will take over Australia. <clears throat> but it had to do with news and the cut of money that, that news organizations and agencies got. So it's a pretty fascinating article. It's very complex, you know, and the fact that we have, this is the interesting thing about the internet, right? It's a global network, yet we have sovereign nations that have their own sets of laws that handle things differently and and we have a number of countries and of course they're watching each other to see you know what's effective and politicians are you know jockeying to see what they need to support in order to you know garner votes you know how do we stick it to these companies and you know ho hopefully in a less um sort of cynical view. I mean, hopefully it is about supporting consumers, supporting citizens, you know, supporting rights like the right to privacy. There's a lot of other things obviously that are at play here, but let's not make the mistake of thinking it's all about Facebook and their, you know, errors and, and uh, misshapen ways. Google is a huge player here and, you know, Twitter is as well. And um, I thought that was an interesting article that would be, you know, Interesting to discuss. We've got our juniors, all of the juniors at our school right now doing a unit on big tech. And I'm excited to see what kinds of projects are going to come out of that in terms of inquiry. There's so many different directions and ways that that can go. But um, we may be sitting here waiting for the tech correction, but it's, you know, it's happening now in other countries. This is a worldwide phenomenon, not something that's just limited here to the U.S. Absolutely. All right. Um, any, I guess we could skip the last one. Any, anything else you'd like to say, Dr. Neifer, about the tech correction tonight? Well, the discussion's ongoing and stay tuned. All right. There you go. Should we talk some Microsoft? Sure. Um, I, I didn't read it very much into detail about this when, when it was released, but this week, uh, Microsoft had an event and, uh, they're continuing to uh, offer their own hardware, which by the way, I think has been very good for Microsoft. Um, I, have generally been impressed with the innovation of their hardware. And although I do not perceive myself to be a consumer for, for example, their two screen Android phone, because that just looks like something that I would break within about 72 hours of owning it. But um, for uh, uh, their surface tablet models, um, really interesting stuff going on in that arena. And I applaud them for going in that direction. Uh, there is a new surface pro eight that's available. Um, I believe the other one that's similar to that is a surface pro 
X, if I remember correctly. Uh, yep, that that's correct. But probably the most interesting piece of hardware, in my opinion, is they do have the Surface Book, which there's three generations of the Surface Book. In fact, I used the Surface Book for a while um, as part of my day job um, uh, a, a few years back. But now they, they're replacing the Surface Book with something called the Surface Laptop Studio. And uh, uh, Microsoft's had a really interesting run the last couple of years with large touch screens that creators can literally grab and bring towards them um, and utilize both a Surface Pen, um, which is a, a pretty interesting piece of hardware uh, that comes along with a lot of these Surface devices. And then also they had a little kind of rotary dial that you could put on the screen and access different commands and, and uh, uh, very useful for a lot of the different uh, drawing and graphics applications. Um, but now they're releasing something called a Surface Laptop Studio, which is a metal laptop that looks like the other Surface laptops or Surface Book laptops, but um, it essentially allows you to fold it into a tablet or you can kind of bring it closer to you, all of the big Surface devices to be able to utilize a pen and ink more with it. And of course, these devices were all featured with the upcoming release of Windows 11. And um, I, I I like this hardware. I think it's good stuff. Um, I'm always a little terrified with these kind of tablets that don't seem like they have a whole lot of protection on them. Um, and you're carrying around in your bag. And, and you know, I'm a little a little personally paranoid about that. This is my... Um, iPad Air 3, and I want a case that held the pencil on there because otherwise I'd lose the thing because I know myself pretty well. But you'll notice I have a variety of, of you know, cushy padding on here that uh, these, these, these padding layers allow me to feel safer you know, uh, carrying this device around. So, um, uh, I, you know, I guess I, I know that you're probably not in uh, the market for a service device at this point, Dr. Fryer, but put on your IT uh, a hat if you can, uh, you know, blow the dust off of that and put that back on for a couple of minutes. Uh, anything here you might want to roll out to a school? We did uh, in February before the, the pandemic and the lockdown, you know, we did a visit to the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area, um, including a, a visit to um, a school that is completely, you know, Microsoft based. And it was one of the most impressive high school math lessons I'd ever seen using OneNote and everybody on a surface. Um, very, very seamless. And it was amazing. I mean, it was, I, I'd never seen a math teacher using technology in that way in a very fluid and seamless, you know, let's all write on our devices with no problem. And let me, you know, share this with you and see what you're doing live. And, you know, it was just, uh, it was just super, super impressive. Uh, it was actually at an all girls school. Um, the best quote from that article, uh, which I scanned, I didn't read the entire thing was from Microsoft uh, CEO. Do you say his first name Satya Nadella? I'm not sure how to say his first name. I think it's Satya Satya. Satya, Satya Nadella um, said this, uh, technology for technology's sake serves no one. We must advance both the frontiers of technology and its impact on the world. Okay, that sounds like a CEO. But listen to this. I love this. And there's some nice, um, I don't know what the word is for its little irony here. D a double entendre, maybe. Ultimately, though, we build windows for you. So you have the tools to dream big and turn those dreams into reality. We're excited to see what each of you will create with these new devices and how together we will shape the next wave of computing for everyone. I lament that our Microsoft store closed here in Oklahoma City. It was just down 
you know, in the same mall, you know, a few doors down from the Apple store. I kind of think they might've closed a lot of them. I don't know what their strategy I, was. I it think was all of them. I think the model's uh, done. Yeah. Because it was a sales model. It was a marketing model more than it was yeah. a sales model. Um, but it was a really cool opportunity to put your hands on these devices and a lot of the marketing that they were doing. I mean, we think about Microsoft being office productivity and sort of, you know, spreadsheets and documents, but the, the turn to art, the way in which the, the surface and the pen, you know, can just can open up these possibilities. Um, I'll, as a related aside, our Dell Chromebooks and the $25 styluses that we have, Best one I've ever used on Chrome. It's great. I've been sketchnoting with my kids. Um, you can have your hand down on the on the screen. Um, it's not an Apple Pencil, but that kind of technology is really, really powerful. And it's needed. I mean, we you can't do all of your math problems that you need to do in school on a keyboard. You just can't. Um, so anyway, I, I like the focus on creativity. Um in terms of school, if this is an investment question, it's a, it's an issue of your expertise, of your tech staff. It's an issue of your faculty and what they're comfortable with, you know, and at this point, most institutions have, especially because of the pandemic, invested in some kind of one-to-one initiative. And so the question is going to be, you know, do you just maintain and keep with what you're doing or is there a compelling enough reason to, you know, get you to, to leave that platform and move to something else? Um, that's, you know, that was the whole push of the Apple switcher campaign. I don't really see anything compelling enough, especially because, well, there's a, there's plenty of schools and organizations that are fully in the Microsoft and have been fully in the Microsoft active directory, you know, domain. Um, it will be interesting if if Microsoft at some point can can and does push something that really dissuades Chromebook using schools and and, and educators to uh, leave the leave the Google platform. But I don't I don't think they have the, a Chromebook killer yet, and I think they're competing for a different set of market share. Yeah. Uh, even though they've got you know products like the um, whatever they call their you know least expensive. Uh, $400 Surface Go. They've got the Mm -hmm. Surface Go 3. I mean, they're, they're trying, but I don't think that it has the overall, you know, ecosystem. Uh, There's just things have changed so much now where Google is really in the dominant position. I think in, in a majority of schools when it comes to, you know, email and productivity software, maybe that's wrong, but I don't know. I I guess we should pull up an article and do a little homework and see what that breakdown looks like in, in U S schools today. Yep, absolutely. All right, what else? Uh, well, let me talk about an article here, and I'm curious to hear your attitude about this. This is a Verge article that really struck a chord with me, in part because it has a lot to do with what I've been preaching quite a bit in the last four or five years regarding technology. So um, Monica Chen writes on uh, September 18th that you should not use your employer's laptop you should have your own laptop for your personal stuff, right? And one of the things that, uh, 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 well, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm just going to speak for myself here. I'm not the typical user. I buy a lot of laptops and I sell quite a bit of laptops too. And I give a lot away and I give them away to family and stuff, but I like having new stuff to play with. It's what I'm not that into cars. Um, I, I'm not that into you know, high end audio equipment or anything. I don't have a super fancy yard or super fancy car or anything along those lines. I like 
tech stuff. So I always have one sitting around, but one of the things I would be extremely careful about is doing personal work on a work laptop. And it's not just because um, there could be a ways for your, your district's ID, IT department to track what you're doing, not in a sinister way, but a lot of work laptops are set up to phone home or to monitor what you're doing. Um, and this particular article talks about that, and this is in more or less a corporate America, but I think a lot of these lessons are true. Your employer can install all sorts of tracking software and, and it, there would be no problem legally because it's their laptop and you're using it. And if you use it for personal stuff, you may, um, you know, really get yourself into trouble because chances are, even if your district doesn't have, especially if you work in a public school, even if your district doesn't uh, have any particular uh, bans against it, there may be laws about if you work in a public arena, utilizing any public asset for private use or private gain. And so I guess I'd start off with, Wes, what would your advice here to be to, you know, Joe, uh, Joe or Susie Q teacher about, you know, when to use their, their school laptop and when not to? Well, if you're doing anything that's not for your school, that's for money, then you really want to find out if there's a policy about that and, you know, what that is. If you want to err on the side of most conservative, then yes, have a second laptop, Um, you know, use that one for any kind of teachers pay teachers or, you know, writing that you're going to publish or anything at all that you're going to do that might, if you have a side gig, you know, do all of that on your own device. Um, I was more aware of this when I was at the university and intellectual property, like, you know, I've been at a, at a private school. This is my seventh year. Um, and things at our school, this, the, I have felt very comfortable, you know, and I honestly, though, I've done less and less, frankly, over the last seven years, you know, independently than I ever have before. But, um, you know, I've done, a, you know, I went to Brazil, I went to Egypt, I've, you know, done a, done a few, few conferences and workshops. Uh, and I do, you know, I do other kinds of teaching, um, really not for being paid. But anyway, I will look at this article and I'm going to really consider this, especially as I move into my next role. Because here's the thing that we've talked about, and you said this article references it. Surveillance, the ability of employers to do really just about anything they want. You remember that article? Gosh, maybe this was five, seven years ago, where up in the Northeast, there was um, an employee who was actually, I think, convicted and put in prison uh, for using webcams to surreptitiously like spy on kids and turn them on uh, when they were like at home and stuff. Um, but, you know, we have seen an explosion through the pandemic of surveillance technologies deployed by universities for students. Like we've talked about this, is it called Proctorio? I think it is, which uh, is a surveillance technology for test taking to try to make sure kids stay locked in on their tests, that their eyes don't go other places. And anyway, it's uh, it's, it's all about surveillance and monitoring. And there are tools now that are built into Microsoft. And I think Google has them too, although maybe you need to be at a higher tier and be paying in order to have these, but you can see things like, Hey, who hasn't logged into, you know, our Google suite in a long time, or, you know, what kinds of documents have been shared out of our domain or, um, you know, how many, how many minutes has, you know, employee Knifer been on his computer in the, in the last, you know, month. 
Um, and then how does that stack up? Show me a graph of showing me averages. Who's the outliers? You know, who's doing more, who's doing less? Um, it is really important to know the kinds of surveillance that we are subject to. Most employers are going to, for instance, retain email for five years. They can have different policies and it depends on the state. Uh, but, you know, that's typical. Um, retention on video, you know, where are the video cameras in your place of work? So as more work is re moved remote, uh, organizations aided by technology that is more robust and more capable, you know, have ramped up the surveillance that they're doing. So I'll read the article. Um, I think we got to think real carefully. If you are not doing any kind of for-profit stuff on the side, like Teachers Pay Teachers or, you know, workshops on your own or you're writing books that you're going to publish and sell, anything like that, it's probably not a concern. But it's worth raising. And does your organization have a policy? And if you happen to be at a university or a community college, it's much more likely that they're going to have a policy because they're going to cover things like, you know, innovation, trademark, copyright, it, and, and kind of outline that out. Hopefully your school has, uh, at, at a minimum, a shared intellectual property agreement where anything that you've created as a teacher, you would have shared rights to be able to take. But in some cases, you know, organizations don't have that, um, you know, and I've sadly known some people who have had to leave rather abruptly, you know, and they've lost access to some things that they hadn't had backed up and, you know, they, they didn't have on their site uh, or on, on their own stuff, et cetera. So, Jason, have you what are your thoughts on this? And have you run into or know anybody who's run in sort of run amok? of their organization uh, because of this kind of thing. Like, well, did you do that on our device? Well, then I guess we own that. And you know, you don't, you don't own that. Um, I, I know a lot of second and third hand stories of this friends of friends that have run into issues. And the other thing that, that you mentioned teachers pay teachers as an example of this. Um, I do know that a lot of software suites that, that give discounted or free versions to teachers will follow up and likely uh, have a problem if you end up utilizing selling those assets uh, for commercial gain. Um, if you utilized a, a free version or, or a version intended for education, because those are nonprofit endeavors. And even if you develop the initial materials for educational purposes, if you then turn around and try to make a commercial profit off of it. All the teachers pay teachers. You could be getting into a, a software licensing issue and people do go. I'm sorry. Companies do go after individuals for those pieces, especially if you end up being very successful. So I think that, you know, I, you know, I have a, a personal email window up that's that's up uh, part during parts of the day um uh, at work and sometimes i make medical appointments um on, on my work account or read the news or look at uh, a, a government statistic or two related to covid while i'm at work and the bottom line is i feel very justified in doing that but i also know those aren't for profit or for personal gain and so I I think you need to be careful about that. And I'm not saying you need to go out and buy a $2,000 laptop every two or three years. But if you're a Google person, having a personal Chromebook that you can have, uh, maybe the majority of your time you spend, if you have a nice work laptop, you know, utilizing the work laptop. But when you're doing stuff that, that is personal, that you want to stay personal, I think you're better off um, utilizing a personal device. Two additional thoughts. I've mentioned it on the show, and I had put it on Facebook, and um, 
<laughs> I posted something cryptic this week with a chessboard, I, a little Lord of the Rings quote. The, pe- the the board is set. The pieces are moving. And like some people thought, oh, Wes has a new job. I have I do not have a new job. I actually haven't had an interview yet. <clears throat> I've just put an application out there. But um, as we transition in jobs and things like that, it's important to know about Google Takeout, which is a um, service that you can have that can allow you to export your Google data it can be a little overwhelming as far as all the data of all the different services, um, but it is possible for you to set up a second account and then um, have the IT administrator uh, send all of your mail and then all of the Google documents that you own, not the ones in shared folders, but the ones that you own, you know, into that account and um, thinking about sandboxing things and separate. That's how I'm thinking about, you know, my transition now in less than a, than a year, I anticipate, uh, is doing that so that everything's not commingled with my main Google account, uh, but I'll have a separate, you know, consumer Gmail account. You got to think about storage. And you may need to purchase some extra storage to have all the gigabytes of stuff, depending on how much you've created and how much you own. And then the second thing that I would mention that I think is really important, and I don't know that I've ever said this on the show and how much this is talked about, but in terms of personal devices, we all need to be really careful with the degree to which we allow students and others to potentially have access to our computer and to our personal devices. One of the things that we did when I was technology director was try to have, you know, a screensaver with a lock code come up after a reasonable amount of time. I'm not talking about a minute, but after, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes of inactivity, because there has certainly been a number of cases we've heard about through the years where teacher walks away from computer, possibly steps out in the hallway, students step up, the grade system is there, you know, they're able to make changes to the to the grade book or, you know, have access. Um, and then there are also just there's potentially problematic stuff if you would let students uh, handle your phone and, and have your phone. And so, yes, phones have stopwatches. Yes, they have you know, recorders and different things like that. Um, but I think that in the whole idea of sandboxing our lives, in addition to thinking about the work that we do, you know, handing students only a student device. And thankfully at our school, as I, I probably mentioned, <clears throat> we all got new Chromebooks for middle schoolers this year and every teacher got the same student device, which is configured as a student device. So we can log in and use it. But this happens not on a daily basis, but a couple times a week where a kid, you know, their machine goes down. Sometimes it's been with Minecraft. We have to power wash it. It's like, here, just, you know, use mine. Uh, but I'm handing them a student device. I'm not handing them my computer. I'm not handing them a computer that I've logged into my stuff with. So all of that is is really important. So, Jason, I think we've managed to talk for 58 minutes, if you can believe it. I mean, we've done yep. it again. I'm not sure how it happens every And week, only like 18 minutes was about Apple. So I think we can hold your head or hold our head. Hold our heads high. <laughs> hold our heads up high tonight, Dr. Fryer. Okay. Well, hey, what is your geek of the week this week? Yeah, I have a really interesting piece of software that um, I've, I've adopted recently. Um, I'm back to Macworld after spending quite a bit of time um, uh, uh, after I, I lost a, a personal uh, MacBook uh, Air several years ago. Um, and now with M1 World, I'm, I'm back here. And um, I, I've... I've 
started utilizing more graphics software for things like uh, uh, modifying vector images is something I'm able to do now. But the problem is, is that, um, you know, Adobe licensing is an ever-changing feast um, of options, and sometimes they, they, they go into my favor and sometimes they don't. And the current access to Adobe software I have only allows one device access um, and doesn't transfer it to others. There's no home version of it. And there are no, there's no home licensing. There's no cheap options to get that licensing. So uh, the Affinity Suite is a, you buy it in the App Store and it has a, um, a, uh, an InDesign clone, a Photoshop clone, and a, an Illustrator clone. Um, and clone's not the right word. These are full featured suites that are, are intended to be, um, you know, always chasing after Adobe, but instead are excellent suites in themselves. And if I don't want to try to move my license around or for a personal device, uh, when I'm using, for example, I've got a, a, a Mac mini at home now and I you know my work one doesn't have a license anymore to install that at home. Uh, these three uh, software suites are great and they often make them half price. They're just $50 a piece. Uh, that's not a yearly price. That's a, a, a lifetime license to this. But I think right now, and they have been for the last several months, down to 25 a piece. And what's nice about that is that I can just install them from the app store. So I don't even have to sit around worrying about um, uh, 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 the install. Because if I wipe my machine, as I'm prone to do, or move to another one, it's just easy to download and do them again. So that's the Affinity Suite. Awesome. I had no idea that existed. Um, so I'll just do a quick shout out to a, a set of articles we didn't talk about as articles, but space, you know, China just returned astronauts from a three month mission to space. The New York Times today just posted a tour of China's future Tiangong space station, which is pretty freaking amazing. And then I gave a link to the NASA Artemis program videos. I introduced this to my kids today as a wonder link. None of my kids knew about Artemis, which is NASA's program to land on the moon and is well underway. And, and, you know, my fifth and sixth graders are going to, are going to see this happen before they get out of middle school. So very cool stuff there. My gig of the week though is from the U S department of education and it's called a digital literacy accelerator. The webinar that's going to give more information about this, this is something you can apply to do, uh, actually happens tomorrow. So hopefully you're seeing this live if you're going to be catching that, but I bet you don't have to necessarily see that and they'll probably record. You have to apply by October 7th, but this is a project by, again, the U.S. Department of Education seeking to promote an informed, thoughtful, and engaged citizenry looking for innovative ideas that increase, quote, digital literacy, promote civil discourse and combat misinformation. I'm actually thinking about maybe the conspiracy theory unit that I've been teaching. Uh, there's different milestones that you have to meet and you can earn, you can be given in prize money, like up to $2,000. Uh, but it looks like a really cool way to amplify ideas that get at some of the things we talk about here on the show around media literacy, which is we need to be informed about these things. We need our students to be informed about them and it's really not just students, right? Because our polarized society has impacts, you know, in, in tons of ways that certainly affect schools. But part of what we need to do is promote civic dialogue, listening to each other, not shouting, and, and eventually, hopefully, finding ways for these tools, you know, to not promote a hyper-polarized um, society where so many people shout at each other and don't listen and 
we end up with different sets of facts, which really make democracy hard. So I thought that was really cool. I'm glad to see our Department of Education pushing in that way. And if anybody ends up applying um, or doing something with that, uh, let us know, because this kind of thing is exactly the sort of digital literacy and media literacy type of initiative that I want to be a part of now. And as I look to the future at possibly, you know, returning to higher ed and being an assistant professor, I'm really interested in. So, Dr. Neifer, when you're not here enlightening us and showing off your hair to the world, uh, where can people find you? Best place to find me, Twitter, uh, Tech Savvy Teach, where I like to tweet about mostly tech news and engaging with others like Dr. Fryer. Awesome. And I am W. Fryer on Twitter. You can visit westfryer.com and click the contact link for more channels than you probably want uh, to, to connect with me, uh, whether it's barbecue cooking or talking about media literacy. So you have been listening to the EdTech Situation Room, episode 232 for September the 22nd. We thank Peggy George, as always, for being in our chat room and giving us great links and great ideas. And uh, yeah, it's just fun. So join Peggy and, uh, and join us if you can live on Wednesday nights. We're here at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central. Check out all of our links at edtechsr.com, where you can also download small 16-kilobit MP3s and handbrake-compressed almost 100-meg versions of our videos, which also are on YouTube, and you can always follow us on Twitter. And if we are making a change to our schedule, as we sometimes do, Twitter, as well as our Facebook page, are the places to find that out. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. And hey... The next time there's a global pandemic, you too might want to forego cutting your hair. If you want to see what that looks like, tune into the show live next time or just watch one of our recordings recently.